0: Welcome to Thoughtfully Mindless. In this episode, co-hosted by Jameson, we have Drew Cicera as our guest. Drew is originally from Canada and has spent the last year and a half as a digital nomad. During this interview, he spoke to us from Seoul, South Korea. He is a communication coach specializing in intercultural communication. He's a photographer and a musician, recently putting out his first single, Coming Home. We invited Drew on to talk about intercultural communication, travel, and life in Taiwan as he spent about a year there. Let's welcome Drew.
1: Drew, you've spent a lot of time traveling recently. Do you want to tell us where you've been this past year?
2: Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show, Jameson and Artie. Uh, I'm excited to be here. This digital nomad journey has started about a year and a half ago. It started off when i arrived back from taiwan i was teaching english in taiwan as a just a cultural experience returned home realized i wasn't ready to return home after i saw the other side of the world so my girlfriend and i decided to continue teaching online at that time and we left for thailand we did six months in thailand on a long-term visa each month is a different city so every month we rented a new airbnb Traveled to that new city and explored the local culture of that city. Uh, after that, we went to Bali, we went to Hong Kong, returned back to Taiwan, Japan, Korea. So, just constantly every month, switching to different cities, learning about the culture, getting involved in local communities, meeting new people, and really trying to understand how, uh, how the world differs, in our, how the world views differ in each country uh, from people to people, person to person.
0: Nice, and you're from uh, Canada, right? That's correct. Yes,
2: born and raised right outside of uh, Toronto, small little town called Oakville.
0: What made you want to get into? Uh, what made you want to travel, first of all?
2: Oh well, man, that's a that's a very good question. Um, after I graduated from university, I decided I wanted to to venture out and experience just something something different than what I grew up in the the normal environment. So I moved from Toronto. To the other side of Canada, I went to Vancouver and I did that alone. And that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done because it was my first time ever being that far away from friends and from family. And it was in that time that I realized the world is much bigger or just Canada is much bigger than I had known growing up. And the people are, are very different. The communities are very different. So after I spent about two to three years in Vancouver, I was meeting a lot of people I normally wouldn't in Toronto or within the daily routines I was doing in my childhood. People from Taiwan, people from Korea, India. And uh, similar to what you guys are doing with me right now, I would just sit with people and interview them and learn, well, what was it like? What is it like in your life or growing up in your country? And I guess for me, it was kind of an eye-opening moment. And I realized after Vancouver, I want to try going to Taiwan and teaching English and, and meeting people who have these experiences. And that is kind of what sparked this, this learning journey of trying to understand the world
0: by living in these different places. Awesome. awesome.
2: That's beautiful. And, uh,
0: how, long were you, how long were you in oh, Taiwan? You.
2: I was in Taiwan on a one year working holiday visa that nice. Canada, Canada grants uh, young young people.
1: That's great. So in addition to being a prolific traveler, you're also a musician. I heard that you released your, your first single this year.
2: That's right. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say music is, is at the forefront of my responsibility right now. It is kind of something I do on the side. I, I do play piano, I sing, and I do have a harmonica that I bring everywhere with me. So when I finished in Vancouver and before I went to Taiwan, I went back home. I recorded a song that I had been writing uh, on piano over the past year or so, while I was in in Vancouver, and uh, I finally released that online. Took quite a lot of time because I was collaborating with musicians around the world through a website. I'm sure you guys have heard of Fiverr. Yeah, you guys heard of Fiverr. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I hired somebody to do the drum track, and I hired another person to do the cello track and the violin, and we collaborated across different countries to release this this one song. And, and that song was kind of a a staple of that time in in my life when I went to Vancouver. That's,
0: that's great. It's called coming home, right? Is that the yeah? Name? That's right. Already, that's oh, right. Yeah, coming I listened home. to it uh, about a week ago. I really liked it. Oh, so thank you. I saw thank you. Your photography too, good pictures, cool stuff. Oh, man. thank
2: you. Yeah, yep, yep. Again, when I was in Vancouver uh, and I and I had that time alone, I I kind of just took the time to to play music and get into my passions. At that time, I was working at Apple at the Apple store, so I was selling iPhone products and Macs and such. And when I was in my downtime, I was taking photos, writing music, and uh, it's developed into what it has now.
0: Awesome, so the, you're a digital nomad. What finances uh, your travel the most? So is it, because you question. do coaching too, right? Interpersonal uh, communication or- Good question. Intercultural yeah. communication coaching, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, To give you a little background on that, when I was in university, I studied speech communication. And interesting facts, the the university that I went to, which was the University of Waterloo, is the only school that offers this particular program across Canada. Mm -hmm. I'm not familiar with uh, if it's offered in the States, but in Canada, it's only the University of Waterloo. And the purpose of the course is to teach you uh, grounded principles theory and exercises on how you can improve your your speech abilities, what it means to create meaning through conversation, interpersonal skills, public speaking, and et cetera. Um, so after I finished in Taiwan and I realized I liked teaching in general, I went home and I started just teaching online to children. It was like very basic phonics, you know, this is how you make the ass ah sound and et cetera. Um, I then started to get adults taking my classes and I started to get very, very, very Uh, personalized with pronunciation sounds, with conversation skills, outside of what the company I was working for wanted. So in fact, they were kind of pushing me down saying, don't teach this. We don't want you to teach this. Just stick to our curriculum. Yeah. And it was at that time I I started to feel, yeah, a little bit frustrated because I wanted to go to a level that with my my students that they wanted, but the company wouldn't let me. So I branched off, started to do my own marketing, uh, posting on Facebook groups, and I started working with I like to say VIP clients, uh, doctors, lawyers, uh, working professionals who need to work on their English clarity pronunciation because they have to work with other countries who speak English as the medium language. So that intercultural is English as the medium language between different um, countries who have to speak English.
1: So I help them do that. That makes a ton of sense. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Do
0: they? In, hey, sorry, a,
2: already. You asked another question. What was that?
0: I did I, don't did I miss one? It. But I, I do <laughs> have. Sorry, a question. I don't Is that uh, specific to English? Um, so, like, because English. I mean, being a native English speaker, yeah, um, and being around a bunch of native native English speakers my whole life, uh, you notice in English speaking countries, English speaking people tend to be impatient with uh, yeah. other with people that can't speak clear English. Yeah. Is that uh, Is it similar for other languages, like where there's teaching to sound? Because you're basically, part of what you do is teach people to sound more like native speakers, right? So is that common with other languages too, do you know?
2: That's a really good question. I'm not
0: familiar with
2: other languages. I have asked, because I, I don't speak any other language, unfortunately, but I have asked a lot of my, my clients, mainly from Southeast Asia, is majority of, uh, of the people I work with. And that is their biggest concern, what you just raised now, Artie, is that they're going to speak so slow that the people who are listening to them won't have the patience to hear them. And then that is where I give, them, um, I give them kind of an ultimatum. I say, okay, well, what is more important to you? Speaking fast and not clear, so the other person has to guess or infer what you're trying to say, or speaking slow possibly boring, making them a little bored listening to you, but at least they can understand you, right? And especially when it comes to business negotiations and international uh, business, what is more important? And they say, well, I need to make sure that the other person is hearing me. And I say, okay, so if you want to make sure the other person is hearing you, I can fix your pronunciation. I can work on your clarity of speech. What can you do before you start the conversation with that person to prime the conversation and let them know that you are learning English, you cannot speak as fast as they can and to please have patience listening. And that's one thing I found as I've traveled around the world and I've talked with Koreans and I've talked with Taiwanese and I've talked with, with Japanese, is they find when Americans or Canadians or native speakers come to them, they speak really, really fast and they don't have the patience to wait for the the other person who can't speak English that well to communicate. But as soon as the other person, the person who's learning English, says, I'm sorry, please give me patience. I'm trying to communicate. It's not my native language. A lot of the native speakers usually calm down and they're more willing to listen. So it really has to do with priming that conversation, which I think a lot of people don't do when they're about to engage in intercultural communication.
1: That's insightful. Thank you. Um, so it sounds like you're, you're offering a great benefit to your coaching students. Um, I'm sure that you've learned a lot. Is there anything that you care to share that you've taken away from your students as well? Oh, uh, anything I've I've learned. Oh my gosh, I've learned so much. I'm learning
2: things every day as I'm chatting. Um, I would say one of the most important things I have learned has to do with the way that culture affects communication patterns. Are you guys familiar with the difference between high-context cultures and low-context cultures?
1: A bit. Um, guess, those terminology. I've heard the terminology, but um, y- y- please elaborate.
2: Yeah. Uh, so so uh, countries like the States and, and, and UK, Canada, uh, pretty much Western, westernized uh, cultures are high context, which means they value direct communication, right? Um, it's about individual liberties. It's about what I want and I want to communicate to you and I'm going to do it the quickest and the most efficient way possible so that you do not have to work so much to try to understand me. Whereas low context cultures, which are more common, I'm not sure about Europe, but in Asia, most of them are low context, is actually the complete opposite. So it is not about direct, it's about being subtle, it's about using more body language, and it's about social harmony and social cohesion. So I don't want to be honest to you if it's gonna hurt your feelings. So I'm gonna find another way to say it so that you have to guess what I'm trying to say, right? And now when I'm dealing with a lot of my clients and I'm asking them questions about their growth, about their uh, abilities, I find they are not wanting to be truthful with me because they're afraid of upsetting. Me. Right. So, if finding that balance between well, okay, how do we how do we how do we get to the foundational truth of what it is we're working together on without you offending me and without me offending you by by being too direct. And if that is able to, if that tension exists just in my classes, you got to wonder how much is that. What does that mean for? In general, people communicating across cultures—how much is being misunderstood or being miscommunicated in that process? And for me, that's fascinating.
1: Yeah, that that really is fascinating. Thank you for that. Um, it, and you found that prevalent through most of Southeast Asia in your travels.
2: Yeah, like for example, when I was in Japan. Uh, interesting fact: I, I researched this. If if you are if you are talking to your employer and your employer is not doing a good job being a manager. I guess normally in the States or in Canada, you might have sit-down meetings where you can actually give feedback as well to the person who's directly managing you or have those conversations to say that, you know, I, I'm not enjoying this or I feel discomfort or uncomfortable in this situation, etc. But in Japan, that is a big no-no. You can't do that. You can't even really make eye contact when you're having those serious conversations with somebody who has authority over you. So one thing they do... Is they give their manager a belt. If you give anybody who has um, power over you, structural power over you, a belt, what that infers is that you need to pull your pants up. In other words, you got to do a better job. Okay. I was like, wow, that's, yeah, that's that's very interesting. That's the way that they communicate. Yeah. And if they're doing that within the workplace, what does that mean with their relationships? Like, how are they talking to each other and, and what problems could be existing that direct communication would just, Fix, and, that, and that's that's interesting to me.
1: Interesting, yeah. W- when you mentioned the bell, uh, my mind immediately went to corporal punishment, and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> "I thought I would have." <laughs> <not> that bad. <laughs> No, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that uh, that makes more sense, though. Thank you very much for sharing that. Yeah, yeah, very interesting.
0: It, what I find kind of interesting about that is uh, it's it's a different way of saying something, but you would kind of think since the idea is kind of universally understood that it would make no difference how you say it right or or how it comes across if you're saying the same thing like if if you're telling somebody you dislike them or or yeah. or something like that versus sending them something that they're going to absolutely hate and you know they're going to hate or or something that's going to symbolize that you don't like them right yeah it's the same thing in a sense so it's kind of interesting to me that it's been adopted in this way where it's like almost universally the way to say this in a roundabout way yeah. but it's being said right so yeah. it's it's kind of not roundabout if everyone understands what you're saying right i guess and I, so
2: and then, but then you have to also consider as well like is there is does the degree of what you're trying to say in terms of how serious it is does that affect the the overall message as well right like there's a difference between saying i don't like you and i despise you And in English, we have very particular words to denote that. But in Chinese, for example, they don't, right? So one of the struggles that a lot of my Taiwanese students struggle with when they're communicating in English is how am I able to to differentiate between, yeah, the word hate and don't like. We're saying Mm -hmm. very much so despise Mm -hmm. and hate. What are those differences? And is that... Is that difference come down to the intention of the speaker or does it come down to the interpretation of the listener? And if the goal when you're communicating no matter what is to make the other person understand what your intention is, th- is that the goal of the speaker or is that the goal of the listener to try to understand? And that is the problem with these low context cultures because there's so much space in the middle for guessing mm-hmm. of what the other person's trying to say that I'm, I'm assuming it creates a lot of miscommunication and a lot of a lot of problems that I'm trying to address with my uh, my students when they're working with other people who speak English.
1: Yeah, right. I, I think that's a very human thing too—the fear of being misunderstood. So if you feel like you are going to be misunderstood, um, you would naturally just err on the side of like being nice, and you know we we have yeah like I'm not going to die on this hill. And if you think like it's not that big of an issue, and you're going to run the the risk of like severely offending somebody. You just might not say what you think or what you feel or bottle it up and Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um I can imagine it's uh very frustrating for uh non native English speakers. I get frustrated speaking English to somebody who speaks English and they can't understand what I'm trying to get across. I find yep. that I mean it's I hate it. I hate the feeling of not being understood. So yeah adding that difference in languages adds such a large barrier. Yeah, and right, it might it, it's it's challenging. I, I'm I'm constantly
2: uh, I'm constantly testing that because I'm I'm in a relationship with a with a Taiwanese. Huh. Right? we've been together for two years. She's she learns English through listening to me teach and through daily conversations with her. Right, her her English is very good, much better than I would say the average Taiwanese, but it's still not her native language. Yeah. So when we are having discussions and we are maybe on the barrier of a tense conversation that could explode into an argument i have to listen so intently and ask so many follow up questions to ensure that the words she's actually the vocabulary she's choosing to say matches her intention of her message yeah because she is not knowledgeable enough to know if that is what she actually wants to say and so now there's like two layers of our discussion there's the me which is i'm defending my argument but i'm also trying to understand her so i don't get mad at her for the wrong reasons yeah and it is like a Constant tug tug of war, right? It's it's hard, it's challenging, and I understand why um, why English is well the universal language, right? And why people really do need to work on improving it.
1: Yeah, and those of us who speak English you could also do a better job at broadening our horizons as well. Yeah.
2: I think so. I think that's one of the the benefits and the graces of you know American society or uh, Canadian society, uh, UK is is because. We're diversified in a population that has people from around the world, so we are used to listening to people with accents and engaging with people who are immigrants. When I travel to Korea and I travel to um, Taiwan, some of them just stare at me because they're so it's it's like a new face. They're not used to seeing people who are not from their country, yeah. and from my perspective, that's like that that's incredible. That's well, it's very odd because I grew up in a in a in, a society where you saw different people, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it yeah. also makes a hundred percent sense if you just put yourself in their shoes for a second. You know, who is exactly where? Exactly. Worth? Yeah. So yeah, with your time spent in Taiwan, uh, where exactly were you staying in the country? Good question. Um,
2: so, unlike I, I most most people who like to stay in the capital cities, I, I tend to avoid them. So I, I don't like to stay in Taipei. I don't like to stay in Bangkok or Toronto. I like to say on the outskirts. So I was in a smaller city, uh, called Shinju, which is South of, of Taipei, maybe about an hour and a half. I think South of Taipei, it's less busy. It's more localized. So costs were cheaper as well, but it is where all of the engineers go to work at, uh, the big company TMSC, the semiconductor yeah. company there. Yeah.
1: Great. That's a, uh... We actually uh, wanted to talk to you about the semiconductor company TSMC um, because Taiwan is, you know, such a big player in chip manufacturing for for the world. Yep. In preparation for this conversation with you, uh, Google's Bard told me that TSMC and a few others uh, comprise about seventy percent of the the chips that are manufactured there, and specifically, they're they're doing a lot of ASIC production. ASICs are um, the chips that go into the cryptocurrency rigs for proof of work mining, do you get a sense that the Taiwanese people understand the the unique position that they're in with controlling 70% of this vital component for cryptocurrency mining? Or is it just viewed as one of these things like, oh, you know, some weird nerd people are into it and it'll never take off or like, what, what was, what is the sense on the ground there? Good question. Um-
2: I'm limited on my knowledge in this in this field, so I can only really base it off of personal experience having these conversations with people. Which, again, even that is limited. Yeah. But as I have, I've traveled around Taiwan. I've talked with many people of older generations, uh, high school students, and even people around my age, and they seem there seems to be a general disconnect uh, between something as specific as what you just mentioned and the cryptocurrency and then other topics. So I have not found that many people are aware of the unique position that they're in. They might be aware that there is a unique position, yeah. but in terms of the details of it, I don't think it is clicked into them. And that's largely because Taiwan, first of all, it has a a reclining or declining um, fertility rate. So a, as we look yeah. at the statistics, the, the generation of older people in Taiwan is quite high. And people are not having any children, so the, the younger people there's not as many. And a lot of these older people, I would say over forty to fifty, have a large disconnect from any new modern technology. Yeah, right. When I was in, and just to give you guys an example, when I first moved to Taiwan, my not my host of my apartment, but the security guard downstairs, he asked me what country I was from, and I said I was from Canada. And his immediate reply was, "Oh, which state in America is that?" He did not know that Canada was its own country. Yeah. and as I traveled around mm. Taiwan and I met people of you know 50 60 years old they don't know much or they didn't know much about world geography about technology mm. they didn't they didn't have that interaction so um no I don't I don't believe that it could be as good as it could mm-hmm. uh, with regards to knowing but there definitely is a niche small market of people who are are specialized in knowing that yeah. in Taiwan I believe
1: yeah, I mean, it's it's a very unique position. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this, where you have some of the world's largest asset managers, like the world's largest asset manager, BlackRock, filing for an ETF, and Fidelity, and Charles Schwab, and all of the big players trying to get into it. But then you have this this country which you know controls seventy percent of the production, like the picks and shovels, should yeah. we say? And yeah, I, I just wanted to kind of get a feeling if like. The general population understood really how healthy they might become if this actually becomes what it yeah could be. so yeah thank you it's a good question and, you know it just just to
2: even mention you guys are probably familiar with Nvidia yeah and Nvidia mm-hmm. is a yeah the the CEO or the company is is a Taiwanese company yeah and right now their stocks have skyrocketed because I think their chips are being used something to do with AI I can't remember yeah generating, generating. and again I yeah again I don't know. I don't know if the average Taiwanese citizen is is even aware of the potential of that because the 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 AI technology hits hit Taiwan relatively late compared to you know the states and Canada and such. So they're only kind of waking up to it now. It did fall. It does take a little bit of time to reach there.
1: Interesting.
0: Have you spent time in mainland China too? No, I have not. I really want to. I want to. Ch- have you been there yourself, already? I have not. I want I was curious if you noticed any difference between the two atmospheres. Um but since you haven't been there, um obviously there's a a lot of geopolitical importance partly yeah. because of the chip manufacturing in, in Taiwan. But it's a uh, weird because China obviously considers Taiwan part of China and I think they'll If I understand the policy of the U.S. that Nixon essentially put it in place, Nixon and then Carter, they acknowledge the position of China without saying that they agree with that position, uh, which they call their uh, one China policy. Um, So Taiwan has this like always this ever present feeling or this possibility of China attacking it or invading it or or whatever it might be and then the u.s could be involved in that situation is there a feeling in the population like does does that reality affect people's day-to-day lives and how they look at the world or is it kind of just in the back of people's minds not in the forefront
2: uh another really good question i i've tried to have these conversations with Taiwanese people, because I mean coming from a, a completely democratic country for me that the importance of free communication as a communication coach as well is like that is that is integral to what I do and what I believe in right so I've been wanting to have yeah. these sit down very personalized conversations with people to understand what are their fears, what do they actually believe do they personally believe that China's part or, or owns Taiwan or do they really think and as I've tried to dissect these conversations, I have noticed there's there's, there's a barrier. So people generally don't like to talk about it, or at least don't like to share their, their realest, deepest opinions. And I can feel that, right? I can feel it. And mm. usually I pull back and I don't, I don't want to probe too much. But one thing I have generally understood is this threat has been so real and so lived for such a long period of time that whenever China makes a move, it makes headline on the news. And then it's immediately kind of just forgotten about. Yeah. Because people are like, oh yeah, it's just our big it's just the big brother that we don't want to associate with anymore, uh, just threatening us and doing what they have been doing for 30 years that'll keep going and keep going, right? And then you know my immediate follow-up question is, well, sure, you can, you can silence it, but how do you not know that this next move that they make will be the next big threat in the next big move? And they're like, nah, it's, it's bad. I understand it's bad. Look at what's happening with Ukraine and Russia, but I don't believe that it's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, is uh, the general response I get.
1: It's akin to the situation with like the Cold War. I mean, Taiwan is in a sense a a buffer between the two two world ideologies of you know the the communist yep. East and the um, capitalist West. So it's and and like I mean, yeah. when I was a kid, I, I remember you know the Cold War was a thing, but very much it was kind of that way here. Like, oh, they might bomb us, but Simpsons are on at six and. You know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's what it is. Yeah. 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 What what
2: Taiwan represents, if, if you were to create like a symbol for Taiwan, I mean, in my opinion, it represents resilience against against oppression because they're constantly under that threat to be to be oppressed by a a communist regime, right? Yeah. And um yeah, the power of of voice and freedom. And you can feel that in in Taiwan. They don't actually hate China. They, a lot of people assume that Taiwanese hate Chinese people and they hate China. And that's not the case. They they don't hate China. They only hate the government. In fact, a lot of Taiwanese people I work with go to China all the time. They love the cities. They love the food. It is different from Taiwanese food. Uh, the accents are different. The language is different. And they do feel they share a really rich culture and a really rich history. It's just the regime and the, the government that they really despise. That's a very evolved
1: position. I like that.
0: Yeah, It's a really frustrating thing uh, with any kind of war or tension, really, that obviously there's the conflict in Ukraine going on. And uh, whenever you have something like that going on, there's a percentage of people that just kind of start to dislike anything associated with a country that they see as the aggressor. So in the US, a lot of people see Russia as bad. And it's like, well, the Russian government is the bad part. Not yeah, the people. exactly. They're just people like us, you know. And uh, it's unfortunate that people, a lot of people, don't make that differentiation. Yeah, it is frustrating because I, I mean
2: that's critical thinking, right? Uh, when I when I first moved to Taiwan, and I met I met somebody on a date, and I asked this question. Um, the, her immediate response is, "I don't ever want to talk to somebody who's Chinese. I hate Chinese people. Mm. Screw Chinese people." so aggressive, like so aggressive. And I was like, really? But what is the difference between the Chinese people and the government? She said, well, they're the same. I was like, "Uh, so if you met somebody here in Taiwan and you didn't discover that they were from mainland China and you had a really good relationship and then you found out, you would stop talking to that person? And she said, yes, immediately. And I was like, well, there's so many things wrong with that. And I didn't want to get into a, a whole argument about it, but I kind of from there, I was like, okay, well, that must be the opinions of some of these people we a living year.
1: Yeah.
0: Um yeah, like you said, that's problematic, right? Definitely. Oh, uh, what do you, what would you say sets Taiwan apart from other countries you've been to?
2: Well, well, uh, other than the fact of its, you know, ge- geopolitical position and the the constant tug of war that it's at with with westernized values of free speech and in in full democracy and then, you know, the the more eastern side. It does fit Taiwan sits in this very fascinating, not, not awkward, very fascinating space of being traditional, very traditional, but also very modern at the same time. You have a young generation that, that blossoms on uh, Westernization, on Western values. They like Western food, they like Western music. And at the same time, that is mixing in with an older generation of people who aren't even aware of that, don't engage in it, um, Eat very, very traditional Chinese or Taiwanese food, and you have this giant disconnect, right? And when you hear these people chatting with each other, you can see that you can, I don't know how to explain it, but you can see how different their worldviews are and their understandings of the world are. And I haven't experienced anything like that in Thailand and in in Japan and such. So Taiwan is embracing and it's trying to get on the world stage as being recognized. And one of the ways that it is doing that is by embracing. Uh, international values uh, at such an extreme rate, in my opinion. Right. Like, for example, I know somebody who's a police officer in Taiwan, and while they're studying and training to be police officers, they have to learn their, um, like, ah, what is it called? Taiwan has like a constitution as well, where you have to read the rights to the person who is, who is arrested, right, and et cetera. And they base it completely off of the United States. They don't even really have hmm. their own version. They just copy what the US did. So it's and like it's, the Miranda Red? Right? Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not familiar with the name, but that's right. They just they just copy it and this is what I was told, so I, I don't see it firsthand, but I was told they just kind of copy it, they read it the exact same and they don't really understand what it means. Right? And then I started to wonder. I was like, well, then are they just kind of like painting this 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 general uh these rules over top of their culture to make it Appear, or to make themselves feel like they are recognized on the world stage for having a lot of this, when underneath it's, it maybe it's a little bit more complicated.
1: Thank you for that insight. Yeah. Um, so, let's say I was going to spend a week in Taiwan. Um, what would you suggest I, I do, like, to get the exper- the crammed, condensed experience?
2: Oh man. Uh, okay, you're going for a week in Taiwan. Well. What's great is Taiwan is super small, right? Very, very, very small. You could drive from one side to the other side in about eight hours, nine hours, and you're you're through the whole country. So, but however, in between, there's a lot of cool spots. Uh, Definitely experience Taipei because that is you know the central hub, the capital. So visit Taipei and then also complete countryside. So if you go south, southeast, there's a small um, city called Hualien which is very countryside, lots of beaches, and et cetera. Uh, you'll see within those two differences, again, the, the, the relationship between the modern and the new and the young, and then you have the traditional, the old, uh, the heritage. And I feel like if you were to just make those trips and stop along the way at different food stalls, food locations, you'll have a real sense of the diversity that can be found in this little, this little country.
1: Great. And would you suggest somebody rents a car to accomplish that? Or is public transportation going to get them from A to B?
2: Public transportation is available. Like trains are, are everywhere. Buses are not as reliable. So trains are definitely everywhere and they, they run pretty late, but having a car would be more beneficial. Uh, there's a lot of scooters. People ride scooters in Taiwan and they're they're driving training program is not very advanced and there's a lot of problems with, with learning how to drive scooters in Taiwan. So accidents happen like crazy. It's, it's quite Mm. terrifying
1: being on the roads. Uh, so if you are going to drive a car, be very, very careful. Gotcha. Um, when you say scooters, uh, you're talking about like motorized scooters, not like little, uh, birds or limes, little electric ones.
2: Yeah. 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 That's right. That's right it's they're commonly called scooters in in asia so yeah it's motorized
0: scooters that's right Great, great. so drew uh you've you've released a song your your first release and you you travel all over the world so have you gotten a lot of exposure in both canada and in other countries because of your traveling um is there a big difference in how it's been received in different areas very good question uh
2: this online coaching, which I would say is, is the start of, of my career. I, I know I'm going to be investing in this uh, for, for quite a long time, uh, if not permanently, is, is relatively new. So I haven't gotten the footprints yet that I want. It is growing in popularity. Like, for example, when I traveled back to Taiwan, I was invited to host workshops at, at different high schools, so they drove me around and I would teach conversation classes and intercultural communication, how to approach a foreigner and ask questions and et cetera. And that grew in popularity to the extent that the news wrote an article about it and everything. So for me, that was a big, big success. It's been harder in Japan to break into the market because they are very, very traditional. They don't speak to anybody that is not from an organization or part of the working with the government. Yeah. So it's been hard there. Um, in terms of my recognition in Canada... Uh, I am working with some institutions. I'm working with some speech therapists uh, who are who are running organizations that want to work with me to 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 help w- with with what they're doing. So it is growing in that arena as well. But I think largely all of my exposure has to do with social media marketing, which I have to pick up <laughs> slowly. I have to add more yeah. into my social media marketing.
0: Okay. Yeah. What would you say is your favorite? Place you visited, like if you had the chance to go back to anywhere you've been for a week, you know, expenses paid, whatever it might be, what would you? Which place would you choose? Definitely Japan. I would say okay. out of all my places, Japan is the
2: most fascinating, but largely because it is very like a hundred percent opposite of of uh, of Canada and of places that I'm used to. Right, Japan, it, as opposed to Taiwan, that kind of embraces um, international. I would say Western standards, especially of communication, Japan is the opposite, and for me that's just interesting because I'm interested in that field. So I like going to these countries where you know there is a lot of indirect communication, and I like seeing how uh, how traditional they still live, and um, and the architecture, the the landscapes in Japan, the religions and their history is is interesting to me. So I'm excited because I will be going back there again in just about a month from now.
1: Very nice. Awesome. So you've been to uh, Taiwan, Thailand, um, Japan, Korea, Indonesia. Of all those listed, who, which place has the best um, party scene? I guess I don't know.
2: Party scene. I'll be honest with you. You guys are asking the wrong guy. <laughs> I don't really party. <laughs> when I'm traveling with my girlfriend, yeah. When I'm traveling with my girlfriend, and you know, she she teaches English online as well. Uh, I'm more into the you know accent and, and such. She teaches actual English. To people um when we are on our downtime we're we're usually just spending time together because we don't we don't have that much time. Mm-hmm. we do work like twelve hours around the clock eleven to eleven every day so this is one of the struggles I would say definitely of the digital nomad lifestyle is it does get it does get lonely like i other than just my girlfriend we I don't really have much time to connect with you guys like it's even nice to just talk with with a couple of guys i don't I don't get that opportunity much yeah um yeah and when we are out and we do see people clubbing and partying uh we, we know like okay we can go do that but then we're gonna feel really we're gonna get hung over and we're gonna feel bad for our classes tomorrow and that's not worth it for us so
1: i can relate to that very much um yeah who has the best your favorite food favorite food you said yeah which uh which of those countries have your favorite food
2: again i gotta go back to japan yeah I like, mm-hmm. Adela, I love Japan. Yeah, their noodles. Ud- uh, have you guys ever tried udon, udon noodles? Very thick. I don't think so. Thick noodles? Oh, delicious, delicious. Udon noodles and their rice is very, very fresh, very good. Um, Taiwanese food has a special place in my heart just because I lived there for a whole year and I, I completely embraced that culture rather than driving through it. Yeah. But in terms of a new experience and you know finding one single place to go to for a short period of time and enjoy the food, that would definitely have to be. Japan, but they are very seafood intensive and, and I have an allergy to seafood, so it makes it very hard traveling. Oh yeah, that <laughs> would be
0: hard on, the, on on an island having a seafood yeah.
2: allergy. <laughs> yeah, a lot of places they say, no, Drew, we can't serve you because I, I have like a list of food I can't eat, right? I had one of my Japanese um, students write a whole thing for me and I show it to restaurants and they'll be like, nope, sorry, we're not going to serve you because we don't even want to take the risk of accidentally yeah. causing a problem, right? So a lot of the time is my girlfriend gets to eat and I'm just kind of sitting there waiting. And
0: afterwards, I got to go find something else. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. With, uh, so obviously in the West, we've, over the last, you know, few decades, we've embraced uh, Eastern medicine more and more. Have you seen any, like, Eastern medicine, um, like, Actually, medicine substances or anything, or or practices that you just were completely unaware of before you traveled there. Well, talking
2: about in, in in general in Asia or in a specific country.
0: Yeah, yeah, in general in Asia.
2: It's very interesting. It's like when you travel to to Canada or, or America, they advertise the advertisements for Eastern medicine are are usually more obvious, like you know when you're seeing eastern medicine Mm -hmm. however in in asia it's not so obvious i guess it's because it's so deeply entrenched in their history that it just kind of looks like any other normal store and a lot of the times it's in it's in the language i can't i can't read so i don't really know when i'm looking or what i'm looking at Mm -hmm. i usually just see like a lot of interesting looking medicine and weird plants and i'll ask my girlfriend i'll be like what is that and she's like oh you know that's medicine and i have asked my girlfriend like well what are your thoughts does it does it work and from my general understanding, it, it is embraced uh, usually as a first-time remedy to to cure whatever the problem is. Whereas Westernized medicine doesn't really cure; it kind of uh, removes the symptoms yeah. and, and hides the problem. So they will try to treat with you know the cures and off, usually awfully tasting medicine hmm. first. And if that yeah. doesn't work, they'll kind of just deal with it by hiding it. In my experience, Interesting. yeah, yeah. Great. but I did go, wh- when I was in Taiwan, I, I hurt my rib uh, pretty pretty badly and I went to the hospital and this was my first time being in a hospital in, in Taiwan or actually in Asia. And when I went and I, and I finally saw the doctor, it was a very, very weird experience. I was standing there and I was trying to tell him, he doesn't speak any English, right? And I was trying to tell him my rib hurts and to do that, I had to like touch it and then I would say, ow, ow, and I would show him where, right? What, what he did is he like grabbed my hand, he shoved my arm up, and he started hitting my chest yeah. really hard like this. And then he hit it, and I said, ow. And he said, ah, okay, okay. <laughs> and then he wrote down like 10 things. There was like five nurses walking around me, like looking at my body and writing things. Mm-hmm. And then he gave me a prescription for like five medicines. Mm-hmm. And then I paid like, I don't know, 60, 70 Canadian dollars for the medicine. I didn't even get to tell him what happened. I didn't even get to tell him what the problem was, and um, yeah, it was not a good experience because he like kept smacking my body to find the part that hurt, and it was sure. But did the
0: medicine work? Did the, did the medicines help? I'm
1: <laughs> sorry, but did the medicine work?
0: Yeah, good Same question. Good I question.
1: Uh, so. I didn't know what the
2: medicine was because like, Google Translate couldn't even translate it. And I didn't even have time to tell him what allergies I had. Yeah. And, and I am allergic to some medicine. Um, so I didn't take any of the medicine. And then the pain went away naturally in about three days.
0: Mm.
2: So I was like, okay, well, yeah, it seemed kind of like a waste of time. But at least I helped. That was an
0: actual hospital that, that you went to was a hospital. At? That was a hospital. So did you... I mean, in the U.S., if you go to the hospital, you're going to be stuck with thousands of dollars in bills. Uh, I right. know in Canada, that's not the case necessarily, yeah, but you know, right. uh, what you don't have a hospital bill, you just 60 bucks and you're done.
2: Yep. That's it. That's it. And in Taiwan, I, I don't know about Japan and these other countries, but in Taiwan, um, and I think it's like this in in, in the States, when you go to, uh, when you have a problem in, in the States or in Canada, you go to a, like a family practitioner or family doctor first, and then they kind of refer you out to specialists. Is, is that how it is in the States? Yeah. 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 So same thing in Canada and in Taiwan, they don't do that. So it is your responsibility to research what your problem is and then find the correct type of doctor for that problem. And that was such a, yeah, such a mind blowing concept to me. Cause it's like, well, I don't know what my problem is because I'm not a doctor. So that's when they said, well then go to the hospital, wait for five, six hours until they see you. And then they will tell you, okay, you need to go see this, you know, Nose, throat, mouth doctor, or whatever, mm-hmm. and then you got to wait for that. So it, they do put more responsibility on on uh, people. But yeah, sorry, Artie, to answer your original question, n- no, no big fees. It's they get free healthcare or at least a large subsidy of their healthcare paid for through their uh, through the taxes. In Taiwan, yes,
0: yeah. Nice. yeah. Um, I know we, you got to get going pretty soon. um One of the questions I wanted to know. Uh, I asked what your favorite place was. What is, uh, what's a place that you wouldn't want to go back to, or is there anywhere that you wouldn't go yeah, back to? Yeah, don't put to? words in his mouth.
2: Oh my God. Yeah. You guys are setting me up. I hope I don't, he- I hope nobody from that country hears <laughs> this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> oh my God. One place I don't want to go back to. Mm. Um. Okay. I would have to say, and a lot of digital nomads are going to hate me for this. I would have to say Thailand. I did okay. not. I did not enjoy my time much in Thailand. I enjoyed it part because it was my first time doing this whole digital nomad thing. So whenever I think about it, it's like that's the first thought that comes to my mind. So it's special to me. But I found a lot of the food in Thailand, and I stayed in six—sorry, uh, five—different cities it was not fresh. A lot of the food hmm. and stuff we got was cold. Hmm. Um, even a lot of the touristy. Destinations like you'll you'll go to to see like an old uh, temple, Buddhist temple, and it just felt I don't know how to describe it. It felt like it wasn't really real or traditional. It felt like they 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 remodeled it in a way to make it look more modern. It didn't feel like you're actually looking at the history. Okay. And then there was one uh-huh. yeah there was one traditional temple that had like Star Wars figures inside of it. So they were mixing new with old. And just out of my personal interest, that that defeated the purpose of going to a place like Thailand that has that unique history. Yeah. So I didn't I didn't like that blend. Um. So it was a bit disappointing because that was in opposition to everything I had read going up to it.
0: Okay. Yeah. I've been to Thailand myself, and uh, I remember a lot of people that talked to me about it. One of the things I said I didn't like is we stayed in the Phuket area, so we went to the PB Islands and all that, and. Uh, but- the amount of trash that I saw in the ocean yeah. was like, it was really, yeah, it was sad because like you're looking at such a beautiful place and then you see just trash yeah. all over and it's like, a, you know. Did you
2: find the people to be friendly though and and nice? Yeah. Yeah. The people yeah, were I found great. Them to, yeah. I found the people to be really good. I guess. Yeah. I, I agree with what you're saying. It was uh, very dirty, even on the streets in Bangkok as well. I Maybe it was the neighborhood I was staying in, but I found it to be really, really really dirty. And I saw, um, you know, starving dogs and starving cats and there's a dead animal at one point just sitting right outside the hotel. Just not not the most welcoming
0: experience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's, uh, it's unfortunate because a lot of poor countries that have yes. really beautiful settings, Obviously, their biggest industry is usually going to be tourism yes and you're it, right. just, it, it just gets exploited so bad and and there's I, I know Thailand put some measures in place a few years back where like the PP islands you can't go yes. there for a few months every year because it's just getting just ravaged essentially Yes, and uh, usually it's just too late it's it's yeah. oh we we let too much tourism go on, and now we need yes. to make up for it somehow which just unfortunate, yes.
2: And I think you're, and you, you know, you raise a good, a good point that they allocate their funds towards the tourism, and that comes at the cost of other things. And, and by me criticizing it and saying, you know, I don't like it because of this, I, I don't know if it's fair because you know we're privileged enough to be able to even travel to these countries, and of course we're going to look at it from the standard uh, perspective, comparing it to our countries, and, and that's. Yeah. It's complicated for sure. It's
1: very complicated. Even yeah. um, US territories like Puerto Rico, which I recently visited, has, you know, a huge problem with homeless dogs and cats. They're they're everywhere. And yeah. you know, that's that's fast. And yeah. Yep.
2: Yep. Yeah. Even in Taiwan too, they got they got so many dogs just walking around. Sometimes, you know, you're walking out late at night, walking home from work or whatever, and there's like five dogs there and they're not friendly dogs, they start barking at you and they start walking towards you and I was walking with my one of my closest friends at that time, uh he was from Egypt, yeah, and he said he was used to this because in Egypt they have this too, and he was telling me you gotta you gotta stomp and you gotta yell at them for them to b- back away because they started getting aggressive at
1: us just while we were walking home. I was pretty mm-hmm. bad that's sad. I got a, a soft spot for dogs <laughs> Seeing homeless dogs or dogs that- yeah dog guy? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm back, yeah, <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Personally, for me, I
2: I have three cats, so I'm a, I'm a big cat person. I, I love any animals, yeah, but uh, I'm a big cat person. And when I was in Bali and in Thailand, yeah, I always bought cat food and dog food at the stores and any opportunity I had, I, I'd I'd put it in a plate. That's good. With yeah, and the food, and you never know when it helps, right? Yep, absolutely,
0: yeah, definitely. For sure. Well, Drew, uh, we want to let you get back to your day. Um, we want to thank you for joining us, but before we let you go, could you Give all of our guests a way to find your coaching, your music, your photography, all of that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me on here. For anybody who's listening and they want to learn more about what I'm doing, see clips of my, my classes and my coaching sessions, everything is found directly on my website, which is uh, DrewCisera.com. So www.drewdrewcicera.com D-R-E-W, Cicera, uh, it links to my Instagram. It links to my my social media accounts, my photography portfolio, uh, and my coaching classes, everything. And you can contact me there if you're ever interested in collaborating with me or have any questions about uh, anything I'm doing.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Drew. Yeah, thank you, Drew. Thank you, Jamison and Artie. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you.